Hi, how are you? Good morning. Hello, good morning. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. Uh, yeah, th no, thank you so much. That's really wonderful. Um, we still have a few minutes, so um, I'll just um, set everything up. Great. And, yeah, so I can hear you really well. Can you hear me well? Yes, yes, I do. Perfect. Don't okay. you do you hear any echo or anything? No. Uh, no, for me it sounds good, so I think it's right. right. So, yeah. Great. Trying to set up the the topics, but mm -hmm. I think like there's not too many options <laughs> on clubhouse for whatever reason. So I think science. I tried to look at genetics, but there's no genetic topic or like an option to put. Oh yeah, sure. Molecular. It's too specific, so science and biology <laughs> will have to do. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> okay. So, do you think you can um, upload the presentation I shared with you here, or? Uh, um... Yeah. Okay. Let me show you how it works really quick. Uh huh. Uh, put it up. So. So it's not the screen share. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, um, it's a Google Drive. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. so people will access it uh, by mm -hmm. themselves and scroll through it by themselves. So it's really helpful if you say, uh, let's go to the next slides. Come oh, yeah, on. yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, and uh, we'll start like in a few minutes with mm -hmm. a short inter pre-interview if that's okay with you sure and um yeah and then it's time for a presentation and for for a discussion as long as you have time so great that's great uh i'll i'll share the paper the link to the paper in the chat also mm -hmm. so all the way on the bottom left side there is like a speech bubble with a number two mm -hmm. that the chat where people can post questions or we can share resources um so it's like um we we can talk with the whole audience basically there and then you already saw the 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 direct messaging option where you know just the two of us or so can talk great you already messaged me there, so <laughs> I don't need yeah. to. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Perfect. How's your day so far? Good. Uh, here um, we are uh, go this week. Everyone's back from holidays, so it's super uh, hectic days with lots of meetings and, and so on, but uh, really good so far. Okay, good. <laughs> the, the weather is super nice, so it doesn't feel like winter. Oh, really? It's nice. It's not raining in in, no, in Porto, in my hometown. Oh, perfect. That's yeah. nice. Yeah, in my hometown in Porto, were floods. Oh, it was raining too much, and oh. I think in California's flood floods are going on. 
but here in New York, it's very mild. I mean, it's still cold, but for, you know, for the time of the year, it's, it's really mild. It's not freezing. But not like uh, during uh, Christmas that uh, in the news, it was quite scary the, seeing the snowstorms happening there were quite impressive. Well, we we didn't have snowstorms, but in other parts of the U.S., yeah, they had snowstorms. But for some reason, New York and like New York City, at least, um, until now, we didn't have any. We went, <laughs> I went with my kids one time uh, uh, snowboarding, but it was in the mall inside because there's no snow around here so far. <laughs> 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 so you can go to snow, uh, in the to the um, in the mall to to the snow. Yeah, there's a year-round snow. It's really not good for the environment, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, outside uh, skiing is also not good for, I guess, for the erosion and stuff. But yeah, um, yeah there's a American Dream. It's like in Jersey, like right by New York City in Jersey. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like a huge mall. They have a whole indoor um, entertainment stuff like um, with rides and then also with um, a pool with like all this um, tropical stuff and oh, waves. Wow. And, and then they have also uh, skiing and snowboarding place and I thought oh, it will be really bad when I heard about it and my daughter went with friends there and she said it's very impressive so we went and it's actually yeah relatively good and I mean for the kids should be amazing to be able to ski and go to the pool the very same day same place <laughs> <laughs> yeah we only did one thing on that day but it's the closest here to New York City, I guess, where you can do this stuff. So it's like 40 minutes from here. Wow. So it's very really convenient, convenient for us. Yeah. Here it's so warm that most of the of the slopes don't have snow unless they they put artificial the uh, snow. And uh, but aside from the slope, everything is green and uh, it doesn't look like a um, ski resort. It looks like being in like spring or autumn. It's a bit weird. Let's see how it gets in February. Yeah, I here is the same. It's so weird, and I actually like snow, like <laughs> <laughs> skiing and things like that. So. I always feel sad if there's like no ice or no, you know, like we also go ice skating and stuff, but it's all mm. artificial. It's nothing mm. is like natural anymore. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where do you usually go? Um, uh, so here in, in Barcelona, um there's a there's a place called la molina where you can reach by train it's a couple of hours and it's really well organized because you can buy like the train and ski pass together so you just 
jump on the train and go to ski for for the day and go back to Barcelona. Otherwise, there's Andorra, but it's like a sort of like Monaco, a tiny country in between France and, and Spain. And and there are many ski resorts there as well. And it's three, four hours from here. So it's not too bad. Oh, that's good that everything is included. That's really mm. good. Yeah. Yeah, so you don't even need a car to go. So it's it's really easy. That's really great. We, here in the city, I'm not sure, probably there's something like that, but we have that for the beach. Um, mm. There are ferries that take you from the city to like, different nice um beach places like either cape cod or then long island but I'm not sure about the the skiing maybe i just don't know <laughs> but that's nice that's really good <laughs> yeah we can start actually so um welcome everyone um i know that people will still continue coming in um but yeah, I think I think we can start by now. So welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome um, to you, um, Vicky. And um, before we start, let me introduce you to the audience a little bit so uh, they know um, a little bit about you. Um, so um, Dr. Negumbar, I hope I'm saying your name right. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> perfect. The, she um, did her bachelor um, in biotechnology at the University of Parma in Italy and her PhD in cellular and molecular biology at the San Rafael University in Milan in Italy. And then she was a Marie Curie fellow um, and her, at, uh, her work was around reprogramming and regeneration lab um, in the Center for Genomic Regulation in Barcelona, Spain. And um, then she um, continued working there um, and switched then to the, as a staff scientist, um, also um, in Barcelona at the Center for Genomic Regulation. And um, she is um, doing really interesting work and I'm really uh, looking forward to the presentation um, that is pinned on top of the room. Um, but before we start with the presentation, um, we usually um, ask a few interview questions. So Vicky, how did you choose the path of becoming a scientist? Was it something you always wanted to do or, or did a class or a book or professor like sparked your interest to, to choose this uh, career? Thank you. <laughs> so, oh, thank you for the invitation. I really I like this initiative, it's really cool. So. Uh, I'll try to make the most of this experience to share what, what we have been doing. So I, I don't know, I guess 
when I was little, I really wanted to understand how things worked. And I remember like being three years old and saying, I want to be an engineer at the beginning, maybe because my father is an engineer and I wanted to fix things and know how they were doing, uh, they were done from the inside. And then suddenly I switched my interest into living things. So it was more about understanding how nature was working. And uh, I don't really remember like a click moment in my, in my mind, but um, I, I found by, by chance when I was considering what to do, uh, all this information about biotechnology at the time, it was super new. And it was like the perfect combination of things I liked, like biology and a lot of chemistry. And uh, it sounds like very oriented to research. So this is how, how I ended up doing that. And then and, uh, probably the biochemistry courses where they were explaining like the beginnings of epigenetics were the ones that really inspired me to to go on with this path yeah that's interesting um that you wanted to become an engineer first and then um later on come the interest for living things that's um uh, yeah i've uh, that's really interesting and then you already alluded how you became interested in going into this field um, and then for for this specific work um, w was it easy to you know to um, like how did this project come about um, was it something hmm. that was planned for a long time uh, before you know or was it um, easy to get grants for uh, were there problems um, uh, I think it's always interesting to know how, how the projects came about and then that it worked out in the end it's always <laughs> always fascinating <laughs> yeah. actually well I guess these these projects started uh, from uh, lots of coincidence that in a way they all align to make it possible. So in, in a way, when, when, I was in, when I was in Italy, I was mostly working with um, reprogramming and muscle and genetic disease. Like I, I was more into the epigenetics and genetic field. And then when I considered moving to Barcelona, I discovered that the group I applied to that was also working with the regeneration and reprogramming was also starting to work with these uh, sort of new microscopy techniques that are called super resolution microscopy. And I had no experience at all with, with that area. But when uh, my current PI started to talk me about like this uh, this topic I was like wow like there are so many things you can do applying to this microscopy because it you can see 10 times more things than what you usually see with a regular microscopy so this opened up a whole world of possibilities for me so I I first started working with microscopy here with super resolution microscopy. And since I had this 
interest in, in genes and epigenetics, I said, okay, this is super cool to apply this microscopy that traditionally was mostly used for cytoplasm and not for the nucleus to understand how DNA was organized. And then it happened that uh, in Barcelona, they launched an initiative to promote interactions between institutes with different backgrounds. So they had the possibility, they give the possibility to young researchers, not necessarily PIs, but postdocs to apply for funding uh, if you started new collaborations. So I said, okay, this is the, the chance to find a uh, partnership, a collaboration with people who know about like the whole modeling and mathematics that can help me to combine the biological part with the models and predictions of what we see so to get more quantitative so that's how it started i i got in contact with an institute here in barcelona irb and this uh, team is uh, doing a lot of structures and modeling we team up we got the money and uh, i should say we were very naive at the beginning we we had like uh, an idea in our mind and when we started we started to say well maybe we were over ambitious we have to change a bit the strategy but in the end uh, the the final results were beyond what we what we expected so it was it was a really exciting journey it took us five years but uh it's it's really great to see what what we achieved so far. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's really interesting to learn um, that, you know, this collaboration um, was important. And then also, um, yeah, that you in the beginning got uh, kind of, you know, scared, but then it, it worked out better than expected. That is really wonderful. So congratulations. And um, yeah, the state, so the, the, the PDF file is pinned on top so everyone can access it. And the stage is yours. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for this invitation again. And uh, I, I will try to be uh, as little technical as possible and focus on the potential of these techniques and share a bit what has been my latest obsession, I should say. Uh, as I previously introduced, my background was in genetics and epigenetics. So understanding how our genes are working and how they can be organized to be expressed. And this led me to try to understand if the three-dimensional shape of the genome has uh, an importance for its function. So this is how we started this project called MAYOS or Modeling Immuno-Oligostorm. The name is uh, a bit scary, but I will guide you through the, through the story. So if you go to slide two, you will see this example that is really close to our daily life. So essentially, you can think of many examples uh, where the function of an object is reflected by its shape. So for instance, you have a ball of wool that can be knitted to give rise to different objects, a hat 
or a scarf. And already seeing these objects, you can guess which is their function. And uh, in the same way, there are many other objects you could think of. And the same is true also in our body. So in the next slide, you have the example of the brain and the heart. These are classical examples where you can see that uh, the, the cells in our body are organized in a 3D shape that allows that organ to exert a, a specific function. So in the brain, the neurons will have a specific shape and will interconnect to transmit information across the different areas of the brain or the muscle fibers in the heart will be organized in a specific manner to be able to pump the blood from the heart to the rest of the body. Uh, so you can find this connection between shape and function at many different scales. So mm, scientists started to be puzzled and started to wonder whether this is also the case for DNA. So whether DNA folding is affecting DNA function and specifically gene function. So uh, since I don't know the audience, I will introduce the, the concepts of DNA folding very quickly, but essentially you can also think about our DNA as a ball of wool. So the DNA in each of our cells is um, an ensemble of very long filaments that can uh, get wrapped inside the nucleus of our cells to fit a very tiny space. So this folding should be organized and should be very uh, specific to avoid knottings and uh, intermingling that would uh, create disease or problems. So. This folding is hierarchical and controlled by, by many players. So in slide five, in the right side of the, of the cartoon, you will have the DNA fiber shown as a purple filament, and you will see that it is uh, wrapped around nucleosomes. This is the first step of nuclear organization. Nucleosomes are a ball of proteins that serve as a sort of uh, Pearl, and around these um, beads, the DNA is wrapped around. And depending on the amount of nucleosomes that cluster together, here represented as nucleosome clutches, you can regulate the degree of compaction and organization of the DNA. But then there are additional layers of uh, DNA folding. One of them is chromatin loops. I'm really passionate about chromatin loops and how they can regulate and form physical contacts between different regions of the DNA. Uh, and, uh, and, and then there are other layers. Uh, I don't want to uh, be too technical, but they are called topologically associated domains because they are like functional units where uh, genes and other genetic elements that need to be together are clustered together to help them to work together and and then within um, and then at a higher level of organization all this dna tends to be physically segregated so regions that are um, more decompacted are called the a compartment and are more loosely packed 
and regions that should be switched on off sorry are called the B compartment and are more compacted so overall this is the organization for each of our chromosomes and this organization is also dynamic and cell type specific so you can think that all these layers of 3D, uh, 3D folding should have a functional relevance and uh, can have the potential to put together or to physically separate different DNA sequences. So the question is, are these uh, 3D foldings important to regulate gene function? This is something that scientists have been wondering for quite some time. And uh, in the last 10, 15 years, many different techniques allow us to understand a bit more if this is the case and try to crack the code and try to understand how DNA is physically uh, wrapped and organized in the, in the cell. And what we did was sort of contribution in that direction. So essentially, uh, if you go to slide six, what we wanted to do in this project where we team up with uh, combining people that know about microscopy and about um, imaging and modeling and mathematics to gather many sorts uh, sources of information to try to understand and model how genes are folded in 3D to understand gene function. And uh, we wanted to do this by uh, first developing an imaging technique that allow us to see genes in the cells and see the nucleosomes that were these bits I showed you uh, before. In super resolution means that we can see them with a, a 20 nanometer precision that is very high and it is at the scale of the size of the molecules like nucleosomes and then use this imaging technique to combine it with other sources of information i will explain later that are high c and mna seq and with all this information together make models 3d models about the conformation of uh, genes with nucleosome resolution so in slide seven, uh, I tried to summarize which was our uh, starting point. And as I introduced before, when, uh, when Katarina was asking me about the birth of this project, we had a very naive starting point because our dream was to uh, see how genes were organized. We wanted to um, have this, um, this three-dimensional understanding but uh, we had like very high ambitions and uh, we we thought that was simple but it was not that simple so our um, initial thinking was okay let's pick a gene of interest that will be on so expressed in some cells and will be off in other cells so what we did was to pick stem cells here at the left side of the of the panel and then differentiate itself and in the lab we can switch from one state to the other from stem cells to differentiated cells it is called cell differentiation 
and the other one way around is cell reprogramming. So if you see a gene with traditional techniques in these two types of cells, what you will see is a, a red spot like the one I summarized here. And uh, in general, what you can appreciate is, for example, that the gene will tend to occupy different areas of the nucleus. Normally, repressed genes tend to be more at the periphery of the nucleus and expressed genes at the center. But that's more or less the end of the story. But then if you apply super resolution microscopy, so you can move to next slide, number eight, Instead of having just one spot, you can obtain a cloud of, spot, of spots. So having more precision in your imaging will allow you to see individual fluorescent molecules. I uh, summarized this concept with a cartoon and I showed you that what we do is to label uh, only a region of the DNA thanks to a technique called oligostorm. So we design short stretches of DNA that will be complementary and will bind specific areas of our gene of interest. And each of these probes will have a fluorescent molecule. So they will be like little flags along our region of interest. And uh, having this cloud of red dots will have um, more information than having just one point in the space. So our naive idea was, okay, if we connect the dots, we can resolve the structure of the gene and see a change in gene conformation. You will see later on that this is not so trivial and uh, we needed to add many other sources of information. And on top of that, I told you that we wanted to reach nucleosome resolution and we wanted to understand where nucleosomes are positioned in this uh, region. This because the nucleosomes are very important to regulate the compaction and the accessibility of the area. So uh, what I, I developed was a technique for uh, the simultaneous detection of the genes with oligostorm, what I showed in the, with the red spots. And then using antibodies that recognize our nucleosomes and a specific super resolution technique, I could also detect nucleosomes within the region of interest that I summarize in slide nine with these um, small yellow points. Then if you move to slide 10, this is a bit technical, but I will simplify what I'm showing here. Essentially, what we noticed from the very beginning was that labeling just one region at the time was not enough and we wanted to have more reference points in the same chromosome to have more information. So we decided to focus on a region in the human chromosome 12 that um, has many different genes. And uh, here I highlight a couple of them that are the ones we mostly focused on. So in magenta, you see an area that contains the, the genes called GAPDH-E41. I will call it GAPDH for short. And then on the right part, you will see other two genes shown in green 
called Stella and Nano. We focus on this region because it's quite interesting to us because the left part of this region contains many genes that behave just like GAPDH and NANO. This means that all these genes are generally active in both stem cells and differentiated cells. And they are summarized with the red block in the, um, in the upper part of the panel where it says AB compartments in fibroblasts. So all these genes tend to be active and GAPDH and EFO are one of them. Then on the right part of this, um, of this region, we have genes that instead are only active in stem cells. So these are genes that will be normally silenced in differentiated cells and active only in stem cells. So these are the genes that will switch on and off between our two experimental conditions. So the regions that I highlighted in magenta and green are the ones that we have imaged and all the region contained within the orange area uh, was also analyzed with HiC and MNA-seq that I will introduce later on. Essentially, this was our test region and what we first did was, as I said, to find a way to label at the same time the, the two different two different genes at the time. So in uh, slide 11, you will see that um, the um, GAPDH-EFO um, gene cluster was labeled with one color in magenta in this case, and Stella or Nanog with uh, green. And in the bottom panel, the, the one labeled with an A, you see that in, the, in each of these cells, so this is just one nucleus of the cell, uh, you can see the presence of a magenta spot and a green spot, one for each chromosome. And you can appreciate that within the very same cell, you can also have variability in the distance between these two genes. So this means that there is quite a broad spectrum of distances between the genes and uh, quantifying these uh, distances, we already saw that in general, in stem cells, the distance between GAPDH and NANO was slightly reduced. And uh, also unexpectedly, we saw that the distance between GAPDH and NANO was shorter than the one between GAPDH and Stella, although GAPDH and Stella are closer in genetic space than uh, GAPDH and NANO. So this was already a first indication that there were some three-dimensional arrangement that brought together or closer in space GAPDH and NANO in three dimensions. So um, having set up this first strategy of imaging, then I also developed a way that I, I, I won't go into much of the technical details, but essentially I found a way to image nucleosomes on top of these, on top of these genes. So in the panel that you see in slide 12, you see again one nucleus 
the distance between the two genes and then applying super resolution to one of these genes, I zoom in and for gap dh you have the super resolution image. Here is not that clear, but instead of having just one point, we are having a cloud of points that have uh, a lot of uh, spatial information that then we can analyze quantitatively. And on top of that, you see the last panel that says H3SR means that we are detecting as white spots the positions of the nucleosomes within the area of interest. And as I said, we wanted to combine this uh, immuno-oligostorm uh, imaging with additional sources of information from HiC <coughs> and MNA-seq, sorry. So <clears throat> our ambition was to develop um, Mayo's technique to, de to be able to make models like the ones you see at the bottom panel of uh, slide 13. <coughs> so if you move to the next slide, I will uh, briefly introduce the concept of high C to uh, put you all in the same page. Essentially, HiC is a technique based on DNA sequencing that allows you to understand which, re which regions in the DNA are close to each other in space by um, doing a biochemical linking of chromatin. So in, in panel A, you have a, a cartoon that shows the DNA as a black filament and when you add to the cells a chemical component that will cross-link regions that are close in space, you can isolate these interacting um, parts of the DNA, ligate them together, and then sequence these regions to understand which uh, sequences were close in space will appear as combined sequencing reads. And uh, as a result, what you uh, obtain from HiC is a map for each of the chromosomes where regions that tend to be frequently interacting together are represented with a warmer colors and regions that don't interact together are represented with colder colors. So um, this is a technique that was extremely useful to understand at the genome-wide level how the DNA was organized, but it doesn't provide an actual direct visualization of the chromatin fiber in the cell. You are the, the, um, inferring the organization from the frequencies of interactions that you obtain from a cell population. Instead, our imaging technique is providing single cell information. So we wanted to combine the power of these complementary approaches and uh, we perform high C on the very same cells where we perform imaging. So here you have the high C maps in BA panel for the differentiated cells and in the B for the stem cells. And the low the left panels in slide 15 are the high C maps and the right panels are the 
distance maps. So we convert these frequencies of interaction into probabilities of distance between these uh, sequences in the three-dimensional space to create three-dimensional models that I'm showing here in the panel C and D. So to um, help you um, navigate through this slide, essentially what we visualize by performing high C in our cells is that there are uh, quite important structural changes with uh, the change in uh, cell type. So essentially in, uh, in differentiated cells, we have some interactions that are predominant, the ones indicated with a black dotted area, uh, arrow that are bringing together regions from the left, the right side of our region of interest, the one that I was saying that was mostly silent in these uh, cells. And these interactions are disappearing in the stem cells where these genes become active. Instead, um, there are other interactions that are again in stem cells, the ones within the square, the dotted square highlighted in both panels. You see that there is an increase of interactions in that area, and this area corresponds to the presence of the nano and stellar genes. So if we, if we model all this information and we compare how these genes are organized in uh, differentiated cells and iPS cells, and you focus on panel C and D, you see that the region appears quite different. These models look a bit chaotic because what we are capturing here is an ensemble of possible conformations. So we are putting together all possible conformations that we detected in our experimental data sets. And from there, you can already see how the structures are quite variable within the cell types and between the cell types. So essentially, we see in general, as we saw for imaging, that the distances between GAPDH and NANOG are reduced in iPS cells. And we also see that the distances between the two active genes, so um, Nanog and Stella, are also reduced. And now, um, going to the next slide, slide 16, I will zoom in into very specific examples. Here, what you are seeing in these two panels is the integration between the imaging information, so the one I do in the cells with the high C model uh, based models. And we are putting together all the information. So we are taking into consideration the distances we map in single cells, the presence of the nucleosomes across our regions of interest, and the different models that we generate with the high C maps and putting and fitting this information together, we can improve the quality of our models and take into consideration the cell-to-cell -cell variability. In these examples, I want to just to highlight some of the structural rearrangements that we detected. So if you focus on the uh, zoom-in boxes, 
that have Stella and Nano, you will see that in the case of the fibroblasts, the two genes are not facing each other and they are further apart in space compared to the iPS cells in the stem cells, you see that the two genes become uh, closer in space and they are facing each other. And this nicely correlates with the previous studies that were suggesting that in stem cells, these two genes can be brought together and act as a cluster because there are common factors that are regulating them. Also, as uh, I introduced before, we see that the distances between the genes in general is reduced in uh, stem cells. And so our models allow us to um, see or to try to understand from a more physical point of view how the genes are organizing space in different cell types. Um, and uh, the same can be applied to other cell types. In this case, we also took advantage of published data sets in which other researchers were studying the um, alpha globin locus. So this locus is uh, very specific to red blood cells. Only red blood cells or erythrocytes express the alpha globin gene and this <clears throat> is um, um, sustained by a specific structural arrangement that occurs during the differentiation of these cells. So it has been proposed that in these erythroid cells, certain parts of the genes come into contact, forming a hairpin structure that will bring together functional elements just like uh, switches in an electrical circuit, uh, bringing them together would allow the, the gene to be switched on. And uh, using high C data sets and fish data sets, so imaging data sets that were coming from different papers, we integrate all in our MIOS model and we could recapitulate these structural rearrangements. So in slide 17, if you see at the E panel, you will see that we can catch a hairpin structure formation in erythroid cells and a much more elongated structure in ES cells that have the gene switched off. So as I said, beside integrating high C, we also wanted to achieve nucleosome resolution. And uh, to do so, we also wanted to integrate other valuable sources of genetic information, in this case coming from MNA-seq. So MNA-seq is a technique that um, allows you to understand where nucleosomes are preferentially positioned across the genes. And this is thanks to the use of a protein that can cut the DNA only in regions that don't have nucleosomes. So in slide 18, you have a schematic cartoon where you, um, where you see as pink arrows, the sides where the enzyme can, can cut essentially between nucleosomes. So as a result, when you use this enzyme, this protein, 
you will just maintain the DNA sequences that are protected by um, nucleosomes and you will sequence, it, sequence them. So the more you have reads within a certain region, the highly the high the probability of having nucleosomes within that region. So as for high C, this information comes from a cell population. So we did some mathematical deconvolution of these data to understand which could be the um, possible conformation in single cells. And we integrated this information together with our imaging data. So uh, just to summarize this part, in a, in a single slide, what we reach with this additional layer of uh, modeling and epigenetic information is a model of a single gene with higher information because now you are seeing the fiber um, in just one gene of interest. So here in slide 19, you have an example on how the nanogene looks like in our two cell types of interest. And you can see as small spheres, the places where nucleosomes are predicted to be located and the organization in 3D of the chromatin fiber. So um, with this technique, we obtain a quite high level of fitting. So agreement between our imaging information and the sequencing-based information from MNA-seq. And uh, with this additional modeling, what we can see is with greater details how the genes are organized in 3D. For example, here in the fibroblast, where Nanog is switched off, you see the appearance of uh, bigger clusters of nucleosome aggregates and like the ones you see in the G panel, while in stem cells where the gene is expressed, the whole region looks much more extended and the, the chromatin fiber looks much more accessible. The beauty of these models is that we, we want to further develop them to play around with these structures and try to predict from these arrangements which regions are physically more accessible, where protein binding can occur, which regions can be uh, expressed with higher efficiency, which are the accessible or inaccessible surfaces and so on. And uh, in, the, in the future, we want to understand by making genetic modifications or alterations of the system to understand which is the impact on structure and gene function. So just to wrap up what I showed you so far, what we did in this uh, MIOS project was on one side to develop iOS, which is a technique to simultaneously image genes and proteins in super resolution. So with a higher level of spatial information and uh, these can be extended virtually to any gene or any other protein that interacts with chromatin. And on top of that, we integrated iOS with a high C and MNA-seq data 
to have two sorts of models, one that has high C-based information and the other one with MNA-seq information. And in both cases, what the imaging part is uh, contributing to is to give us a single cell perspective of uh, the 3D folding. And these allow us to better appreciate how the structure can be variable between cells and understand the relevance of this intercellular variability in biological terms. And uh, with this sort of proof of concept phase, we could already identify different foldings, alternative foldings of genes that have um, a correlation with uh, their level of expression. And uh, in the future, we want to expand this technique to larger stretches of the, of the DNA and to understand much more the correlation between function and uh, structure. And with this, I would like to uh, thank a lot the whole Myos team. As I said, this was a very multidisciplinary study. We team up in Barcelona with a group of Modesto Orozco. All the people in this uh, group picture are half from our lab in, at CRG Barcelona and half from IRB. We also team up with a group of Ting Wu in Harvard and uh, with the great help of Jumana, who developed originally the oligopaint technique and uh, have helped with the design of the oligoprobes. And then with uh, Melike Lacadamiali at UPenn, who is uh, on the imaging side, an expert in storm microscopy. And I started um, the work here in Barcelona with uh, her as well. And uh, to my PI, Pia, and all the team. And of course, all of you for your attention and for joining today. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for this really amazing talk. Um, you um, described so well how, um, yeah, how the technique works and then also the results, which are really impressive. And um, it's like the more we learn about, um, you know, molecular biology, how gene expression works, there are so many more layers of complexity. It's really fascinating to learn about it. And um, yeah, congratulations again for this amazing work. Um, it must have been, you know, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, many hours at the microscope. Thank you. Thank you. So it's, uh, so it's, it's challenging from the technical point of view because each of these images might take several hours so each nucleus takes maybe two hours so um, I, I spent many many hours at the microscope and the mathematical teams many hours modeling as well yeah yeah exactly that's what I imagined and um, yeah it's it's wonderful to to have these uh, results and um, to, to see how uh, folding changes the landscape um, of gene expression uh, so significantly uh, throughout different stages of 
development of the cell and 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 then the whole organism so um my question would be if you um imagine what the you know what the different environments um other than um uh, the stages of the cell, if it's stem cell and what type, you know, along that spectrum, like, are there, or did you uh, check um, other manipulations like um, cell stress uh, during adult or so on, or is it something that maybe you're going to do or different disease states and how these, uh, you know, these specific um foldings of the genes are they changed um in any way oh yeah so um, actually when when we started the project we wanted to compare so many conditions then we had to be uh, more pragmatic and the, this current work has uh, just these two conditions but in in other studies i'm very much interested in the impact of uh, transcriptional and the protein specific protein binding to some regions to their structure so I've been testing different conditions that change the organization of genes for instance if you um, modulate the amounts of uh, coesine and CTCF so in in slide number five I have this cartoon where I show um, some of these proteins are involved in forming these physical con contacts and if you modulate their binding which is highly dynamic and normally changed throughout the cell cycle of the cell and even upon different environmental stimuli you can greatly modify the structure then if you repress transcription or repress uh, other proteins that are called topoisomerases, you also change greatly the organization. So in, a, in another study, I, I saw that this is massively changing the 3D folding. Then now we, we would like to, to focus more on, and there, and there are diseases related to mutation in these factors. And, and now we want to focus more on the dynamic transitions of these changes. So as far as I showed you, we have focus on stem cells and differentiated cells, but there is a whole spectrum of intermediate states that are rapid changes that happen along the way or even changes as you said of the stress for example changing the nutrient amount of the cells or even the, um, the stiffness of the the place where they are growth will affect their organization and we want to understand how this is happening yeah that's uh that's really interesting and i think it will um you know give really interesting results um and um i did, i wanted to ask kiko did you have a question or anyone in the room if you want to raise your hand 
or post a question in the chat, feel free to do so. Um, but um, yeah, in case Kirko wants to ask, I want to give him some time. How's it going? Um, I do have a question. It may sound a little silly, but uh, is it possible, like with your um, your, your method of viewing the these uh, the DNA cells, is it possible to kind of take like a prolonged like view of them so you can see like change over time? I don't know if that makes sense, but like uh, I'm trying to think back when I used to work with like cool microscopes. But there was like a way uh, where they like you could set something up, but it have to like I guess like um, not lose too much fluorescence over time, and you can kind of see like how a change would happen over like a short span of time. But I was wondering if like with this method, is it possible to kind of do something like that so you can kind of see like okay between we know that the cells in this stage, but from this stage to this stage, this is what this is what's happening to this uh, area of interest. That makes sense. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, that makes perfectly sense, and uh, it's a, a really cool question. We are very much interested in uh, seeing these rapid changes or following the same cell and its transition in time. Unfortunately, with this specific technique, we have to kill the cell. So all the results I showed were in fixed cells, but at the same time, we are working on other strategies to see these changes in real time. So what we do is to label the, the cells with um, it's a derivative of Cas9. Um, so it's based on CRISPR system. So we, we label specific regions and we target them with uh, fluorescent proteins. And you can follow the behavior of a gene in, in living cells in time uh, and these systems at some point you you start losing some fluorescence but they are quite robust and we could for example follow the movement of the chromosome ends in time and show how they relate to their size or to the size of the cell and so on yeah so this is possible and the, there are many cool developments lately to try to, to do so live, but some, some cells are more sensitive than others. So in some cases, they, they don't cope with that very happily. Thanks for, so, for your question. Thank you. Uh, hi, LT, uh, welcome to the stage. Hello, Katarina, every day. Thank you for hosting and thank you, Vicky. I catch a uh, second part of the talk. I have a quick question about SNICE-19. Can you go to SNICE-19? Yes. Um, thank you. Okay, let me go to there first because I went yeah. to look. Okay. SNICE-19, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, you have. So uh, panel G and the panel J. My question mm -hmm. is that, the, please clarify for me. When you say the, there's uh, like a 58 nucleosomes versus a 62, two nucleosomes, we're looking at the same range, right, because you label that part. And mm -hmm. then also the other part is that you said that it's more extended, it's more, the end-to-end -end point, the point of interest coming closer, it's 342.2 nanometers. Mm -hmm. And versus in the G panel, which is like a so far apart, like 600 nanometers. But 
so what not quite clear to me is are we looking at so you have more nucleosome in the panel j like 62 so then the where the oh yeah and yeah do you see can you see your point one more time thank you yeah yeah i i see your point uh and thanks for raising up this point because maybe the the choice of these two structures was a bit misleading or i wasn't clear enough so essentially in in this case in these structures we measured very different parameters one of them is the end to end point different distance but in this this is not so meaningful because the two ends here we are modeling and showing just these two this part but of course these two ends are connected to the continuation of the chromosome on both sizes uh, sides and it's not so meaningful what we also um measure and i and i was referring to that mostly is more the surface or the volume this area this gene occupies in space so we do a more volumetric analysis of what the whole region I'm displaying. And this is the one that it is more extended in stem cells when the gene is open and more compact in the, in the other case. Um, I'm sorry that this number is a bit misleading. And another thing that I, I wasn't uh, maybe too clear about is that uh, when you focus, for example, in the pink area in G panel, you see that there is an aggregation of many nucleosomes altogether. Um, right, and I see that. Yeah, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. And if, yeah, and if you go exactly to the same area in the other part, it is much more extended. And this area is more related to the start of the gene, so it is more accessible and more open in the case where the gene is active and less accessible where the gene is inactive um, but these are things that sometimes are like uh, obvious to me that have looked at the structure so many times but uh, i went really quickly on this and and then regarding the number of nucleosomes it is true that in the case of um, of the stem cells, we predict uh, slightly more nucleosomes. But what we found in general is that it's not so much like the absolute number of the nucleosomes, but how close in space they they come, like how they compact in between between them. That is more determinant for the overall compaction. Great. Yeah. Thank you. That I was following. I was trying to listen. I said, "Okay, you meant to say it's more extended, mm -hmm. and then, mm -hmm. then, but then why we're saying more in the same volume? Mm -hmm. But now, thanks. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's all. Mm -hmm. That's a question thank for you. now. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Thank you so much for for um, that question and the answer, and. Um, I wanted to ask, so you also saw differences between um, single cells and you looked at like the average data. That's also really interesting, I think, for the future, um, again, in like different disease states, there might be, let's say, in cancer cells or so on, 
variability that could probably don't do you think lead to predictions of how um you know how to treat uh, different types of diseases um i think it's really interesting um so how big is like i don't know <laughs> if you if you can tell us a little bit about the variability and and where do you think it comes from like um this this is it a big variability or is it just yeah something mm. that you can ignore in like a regular cell state um well in what what we saw and what others saw because there are um uh, studies where they also apply similar uh, imaging techniques to label different stretches of dna even longer regions we were like all very surprised at the beginning to see such a high variability that was not so evident in high C based studies because the uh, the first high C based studies were mostly like as I said population based and there especially at the beginning uh, it was difficult to account for this uh, intercellular variability what you have is frequencies and you don't know if um, a frequency of 50% comes from 50% of the cells having an intermediate conformation or just a minority having a very strong structure and all the others having a totally different structure. Um, and uh, what what the, the imaging area can contribute to is to see the whole spectrum because you can uh, see how many cells have mm, a certain structure, how many cells have another structure, you can classify them, you can also treat them as single entities. And uh, in general, what we see is that the variability is quite high. Maybe this means that the, the system is quite robust to a certain degree of variability and uh, for example, transcription can occur under a broad spectrum of conformations. And then as long as you deviate much from that range, then you, you mess up uh, the, the transcriptional output, for example. And it's a sort of robustness of the system. Or, or maybe there are some other fine levels of regulation in the structure that we still don't understand. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating that this kind of, you know, even each cell is kind of a little individual. And oh, yeah. Even the alleles are very different. Yeah. Yeah, that is, I think that's really interesting because... You know, there's not just one way to get to a similar result. And so each cell is kind of its own entity that learned or, uh, you know, got to learn how to use the genome in their own way to, to get the job done. I think that's a really interesting thought. I, I don't think, I'm not sure, is that a diff, different way of seeing cells now, like with this result? I, I'm not a molecular, you know, biologist. Um, so. 
Yeah, well, um, now, um, like our work and many other groups are, are working in this direction from different perspectives. And uh, there is a very active debate on how like structure determines function and how deterministic the system is and how um, like how much of this is just randomness of the system. We still didn't have a sort of final answer. And uh, I guess the, we are really at the, at the beginning of understanding this, honestly. But it's like really, really cool how things are evolving. There are like so many techniques and modeling strategies coming up lately that can help us to understand that. Yeah, I think it's interesting because we had um, Mike Le Levin here. Um, I don't know if you heard um, the um, lab that the, the Xenob mm -hmm. Um, that can self-replicate and and do different jobs, um, which is really interesting. He he came then to present like his view on um, different types of minds and and um, and his idea is that you know you don't have this fixed blueprint. Um, you have more like as like a job that needs to be done and then the cells themselves or the cinobots will figure it out how to do it. Like you don't have to give an exact instruction and that's not how it works. So that is really interesting. That's his theory and you know how he designs, um, you know, his little organic bots, but now you show it from the bottom up type of, uh, at least, you know, it seems to be pointing in that direction from the molecular biology side. I think that's really interesting. And and I think it's a f way easier approach to to not have to know 100% how exactly and precisely things work on any complexity level, but more to have like, um, you know, this task performing type of design that will be so much easier to solve for us i think <laughs> yeah i hope so yeah yeah that's true and yeah my at least my view is that the system should have a certain degree of tolerance or flexibility uh, to allow a certain structural variability between cells otherwise if things should be so precise and fixed, then first we wouldn't see so much variability and then the system would be much more fragile because any deviation would have negative consequences. So yeah, what, what you say about his work sounds like really interesting and, and pretty much in line with uh, what, what we see from another perspective, yeah. Well, I, that's fascinating. LT, please go ahead. I like to ask is that as you prove the concept works beautifully in the talk, then what next reason you're going to cut and follow up? That's my question. 
I think so, Katarina alluded like about the disease state versus the healthy state. I, I, that's not my question. The question is, you know, you choose a, a particular spot to cut and then to follow, right? And then you probably have like a second or third lined up to do. Thank you. If you can tell us, if share, then that's fine. If you don't, it's okay with me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So uh, when when we actually started the work, as I said, we wanted to analyze on one side the, also the transition phases. So we are very much interested in uh, modeling the dynamic process, like how the system changed from conformation A and B because we have the endpoints, but having the dynamic transitions and understand if there are like intermediate conformations that are necessary to arrive from A to B. That's one one side that we want to to understand. And uh, another one is um, to have a even higher level of integration of information because now we can see nucleosomes, but it would be really cool to be able to add other players. So I'm very much interested in cohesins that are like rings that bring together parts of uh, of the DNA or or transcription. So being able to model where and how these other proteins that interact with pro with the chromatin are placed in a gene and how they can move along would be fascinating for us so these are the two let's say more technical improvements that we want to do but they open many conceptual opportunities because then we can play around with as i said genetic modifications and remove these players and see the impact on the structure as well. You mean like those insulators or silencers, if that's what you want to look at them, yeah? Oh, yes, yes, we could like, for example, cut or remove genetic elements like insulators or promoters or um, binding sites. And we can also eliminate the presence of proteins, like for instance, making uh, knockouts for certain histones or proteins that bind to the structure as well. Thank you. Go ahead, Katarina, you ask a lesson now. Oh, thank you. No, thank you for the question. Um, another thing that kind of um, fascinates me, but I don't know how, you know, if you could observe this, this technique is like how the mitochondrial DNA kind of has to collaborate with the uh, nuclear DNA, would it be possible to visualize it or is it too far distant and, you know, it wouldn't make any sense? Um, oh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, at some point, I I wonder if I could label mitochondrial DNA, but since it's far from the expertise uh, that we have, I never really start that challenge. But in principle, you could label mitochondrial genes or even like the whole 
mitochondrial DNA content and image it in super resolution. We don't see it because the, the probes that we have so far are targeting only nuclear sequences, but in principle, there's nothing that avoids you from like applying similar techniques. Like I'm not aware of like the adaptation of the system for for mitochondrial genes, but it would be super cool also because they have a more like bacteria-like organization and um, and it would be interesting to see how it organized. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be fascinating. Um, so yeah, your, you know, your work opens up so much more work and projects and ideas. So that's, that's, you know, always the most interesting projects that do that. So uh, thank you again for sharing it with us and uh, congratulations. And yeah, I'm curious to see what you do next and the results you will have. So um, yeah, we will follow along your work. So thank you so much, Vicky. Thank you so much. Uh, it was great to be here. Uh, thank you both for the invitation and for hosting this room and for the interesting questions. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all for joining. Yeah, it's been really a pleasure. And um, yeah, um, thank you everyone for coming, asking questions. And if you like discussions like this, uh, just follow the club. We'll have um, more um the next room will be about finding water-rich worlds in the universe and how um, astrophysicists are doing it and, and, and what Dr. Luke will talk about what he found. Um, so it's a very different topic, uh, but I think it will be also interesting. So thank you again, Vicky. Um, I hope you'll come back one day. We'll hear you one day again with more um, exciting research you do and uh, yeah good luck for with everything and I hope you get all the grants and yeah. <laughs> thank you thank <laughs> you all the best to you both and uh, for have a great beginning of the year and uh, yeah hope to be here again <laughs> <laughs> yeah for you too okay thank you everyone Bye. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.